Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Travis Cook. Travis is the Associate Director of Technology Development and Licensing at Oregon Health and Science University, also known as OHSU. Travis is a cross-functional international business development professional with experience in managing, negotiating, and closing early, late, and commercial stage definitive agreements. He is a co-inventor on seven patent applications and is a co-author of several peer-reviewed publications, including a case study in the management textbook, Building a Case for Biotechnology. Prior to joining Tech Transfer, Travis was a director of business development at Galena Biopharma, Inc., and has held appointments at OHSU, Kaylee Sice Inc., and Santa Therapeutics Inc., and Mixture Sciences Inc. Travis received an MS in chemistry from the University of California at San Diego and an MBA from Wilmette University. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Travis. Thanks so much for having me. It is great to be here. Yeah, thank you again for taking part in the podcast. I generally like to start the podcast off by asking our guests, if you can tell us a little bit about your journey to tech transfer. Uh, I noticed that you started out in industry. Can you tell us ultimately what led you to pivot to tech transfer and how you ended up at OHSU? Sure. Uh, so first, I'd like to say that my career is the result of my wanting to make an impact on the community. Uh, I witnessed firsthand my grandfather suffer from Alzheimer's and uh, the resultant dementia. And I immediately knew that Uh, I wanted to prevent others from suffering such a fate. Um, At that time, I didn't know how I was going to make that impact, but I knew I needed to do something more meaningful than I was doing. And so I decided to learn as much as I could about biology and chemistry. And I was blessed to have a really good friend who is, you know, five, six years older than I am to to kind of influence me into a particular direction and got me interested in biotechnology. And um, so that just seemed like a reasonable place to start. Um, I grew up in San Diego, which is a biotech hub. And so I was fortunate enough to have access to a variety of biotechnology companies to work at, uh, even while I was working towards my undergraduate degree. And so I got some previous experience. I was really interested in uh, drug discovery and drug development. I just didn't know where I should be. So I started off thinking biology made the most sense to me. So I started taking biology courses. And in the, in, as I was working towards my biology degree, I realized that just chemistry clicked with me. And so I realized, well, my father's a physicist. And so uh, perhaps uh, that's the physical sciences uh, made more sense to me based on um, just uh, me. And and so I went ahead and switched to chemistry and uh, completed my chemistry degree with a dual emphasis in uh, straight chemistry and biochemistry because I wanted to do drug discovery. And as I transitioned towards graduate school, um, I worked for a company called Ansata Therapeutics. And it was a good 
uh, gave me a good understanding of basic medicinal chemistry, but I didn't have enough expertise to really contribute intellectually to the program. And so I, I, of course, I went back to graduate school at University of California, San Diego in the chemistry department in the photosynthesis department. And when I went back, I'd already known that I wanted to be in business environment. The whole objective of going back was to allow me to contribute intellectually to uh, chemistry programs, discovery programs, such that I could build the basis um, that I could at one point in time uh, build companies. And I wanted to either run a company or just be uh, an individual that was entrepreneurial in nature and built the companies and handed them off to maybe someone that wanted to manage the company. I didn't quite know where I wanted to be yet, and so I just knew that I wanted to be somewhere in those lines, working with technology, um, and then just placing them in the hands of individuals that can do something for the benefit of the community. And so um, I, when I graduated, so I went into a PhD program. Uh, I chose a PhD program because I knew it'd be a full ride, and I chose UCSD because they awarded a master's degree along the way. What I didn't know was where the industry was headed uh, relating to um, hiring of chemist posts. PhD um, and the amount of time it would take for me to get to a place where I would uh, be able to contribute to a project and then transition into a business environment. So I started interviewing folks right around the time I got my master's degree, I, anyone I, I, that would be willing to speak with me. And I, I told them my objectives, which was to um, build companies. And every single person except for one uh, told me to hurry up and get out of graduate school get into a company, learn the, the nuts and bolts of drug development, and then quickly transition to business environment. And so that's what I did. Uh, the one person that told me not to do that was actually someone who left uh, his PhD program. And he never did anything but work in the lab. And so I took his advice and um, thought about, well, how does that apply to me? It doesn't seem to apply to my goals. And so I worked for Clipsis for a number of years. And I really enjoyed Clipsis. It's the one company I, I worked at that had a tremendous amount of resources, and we invested a ton of energy into discovery programs. And I was fortunate enough to work on, on an Alcon uh, laboratory project uh, that allowed me to engage um, with uh, partnering activities and due diligence and some of the other um, things that I may not have gotten to contribute to if I was just on an internal program. And while I was at the company, uh, uh, my wife got a really nice job opportunity, and she got a really nice job opportunity to start a rec clubs program at Portland State University. Uh, it just so happened to be that my entire family was in Portland. She had this tremendous job opportunity to advance her career. Um, I was right at the uh, time in my life where I was looking to move more towards business environment, and my wife looked at me and she said, you know, you're comfortable in your job. You like your job. But when are you going to follow your goals? And your goals have been to transition to business environment. And she said, well, why don't we go to Portland and you can do your business degree and we can see where it takes us. And I was really scared. I was scared because Portland doesn't have a life science sector uh, like San Diego, the Bay Area, Seattle, Massachusetts, New Jersey, et cetera. And so I felt like I was <laughs> taking a really big risk. And so I, leveraged my network and tried to get as connected as I could to Portland before I came to make a informed decision. And at the end of the day, I just decided to take a risk, uh, no, no risk, no reward. And so I, I moved up here. Uh, I kept my job in San Diego. Uh, they had asked me to stay and, and, and they 
flew me back and forth every week. Uh, and I was, wow. did my work in San Diego. And I realized after about four months of doing that, that that was also preventing me from pursuing my dream. And so during that time, I happened to run into an individual by the name of Arun Dep Krahan. And he was a former president of Autumn. And he was the um, associate vice president of technology transfer at OHSU. And we, we got to talking about what I wanted to do. And he said, well, why, why don't you come in and, and meet with the team and um, consider working with us? And I said, well, that sounds wonderful. Um, and so I went in, I met the team and, and started working in, at OHSU and technology transfer. And in parallel to that, I, I um, enrolled in, a, in an MBA program and I selected, my, I selected Willamette University because at the time, they had just recruited an individual by the name of Mark On, who had taken several companies public, and he's a, a biotech entrepreneur. And I had reached out to him, and he had immediately said, well, would you like to start consulting with me? I have a consulting group, and um, I, can, I can help you think about corporate development and business development along the way, um, and while you work on your business degree and as you learn technology transfer. And so that's what brought me to OHSU and technology transfer. And I... Started in, at OHSU in 2009, and I worked there through my graduate degree in business. And eventually, uh, I got recruited by Arcon, who uh, was on the board of directors of a company called RXI, that underwent a stock split uh, because there was some, a long story. But uh, they needed to figure out a way to uh, uh, treat the shareholders in the best possible way and create more value. So they spun out Galena Biopharma, and Mark recruited me to be the director of business development in Galena Biopharma. And it was uh, three of us that really did the corporate development and the business development um, for the company. It was the CEO, Mark Allen, Mark Schwartz, who was a tremendous mentor of mine. Um, he's in the Bay Area, uh, who was the chief operating officer at the time, and then me underneath business development. And that was a really interesting experience for me because it was the first time I'd been in a, in a biopharmaceutical company that had commercial presence. And so uh, not only was I acquiring commercial assets, but I was partnering and acquiring clinical assets as well. And it was the first time I actually had real money to play with because in technology transfer, we're always on the sell side. Yeah. And so it was a really interesting experience to be there. And, and during that time, some, some decisions were made um, uh, that I, I don't want to get into now, Sure. Uh, but um, that led me to to accept a job offer that came my way from OHSU. So my boss, Andrew Watson, who is now the Senior Director of Technology Transfer, had uh, reached out to me and said, Travis, I have a position for you. I'd love to have you back. And let me tell you about what I'd like to do with you over the next five years. And that sounded really good to me. And I took him up on the opportunity and I came back to OHSU. And I've been, since that occurred, that was around 2014, I've been uh, at OHSU, for which um, uh, has been a wonderful experience. Awesome. Well, that's a, a good tie into uh, what I wanted to talk to you about next. Um, before talking about OHSU um, itself, I wanted to talk about the chapter you wrote in the book, Building the Case for Biotechnology. And that was a chapter you you co-authored with with Mark. And so you guys obviously were you know, doing a lot of different things together. And what I really thought was interesting about the chapter you wrote. It was about mycogen before it um, was acquired by Gilead. So I think it would be interesting for people to learn a little bit more about this chapter and ultimately what 
what motivated the two of you to write about mycogen as a case study? Sure. Uh, great question. So uh, this is a, a, a write-up in Building a Case for Biotechnology, which is a, a book that is built to be um, a teaching tool for uh, graduate students interested in um, commercialization, technology management, um, in, in life sciences. And it's, it's, um, there's clinical, uh, a section on clinical and, and R&D. There's a section on legal. So you get into your patents and some of the contract litigation. And then there's kind of interesting business cases. And Myogen was an interesting business case for a few reasons. Um, so first, the whole reason we wrote um, Myogen was there was a really critical decision that needed to be made by the CEO and the board of directors as they have a responsibility to the shareholders. And, and so we wanted to address uh, that critical decision, but we also wanted to highlight um, how assets move from one place to another. And um, I mean, the, the, the whole reason uh, Myogen was, was acquired was for largely a single asset, Amerson. And, and so they acquired it, and it was it was it was sitting on the shelf at, at a pharma company. And so there was an in licensing deal, um, and this happened kind of late um, in the company's um, kind of pipeline development uh, cycle because they'd gone through a Series A, they'd gone through a Series B, and I believe that they brought that on right around the time that they actually did a Series C, and I think they also went on and did a Series D. Uh, and so they really uh, were kind of late in the life cycle of pipeline development, and they really needed to create value for their shareholders. And it was a pretty small startup. And so they had brought on-the-shelf set into the company, developing it for a blockbuster education, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, big, big study design, highly powered studies, uh, long, uh, high-risk endeavor. And so things were looking really positive for Myogen. And, um, and of course, they, could, they didn't have any uh, insight into the, the double-blinded study that was taking place. However, they knew based off of their uh, evaluation of the asset and, and the phase two studies that they had a, a high, strong likelihood of getting approval. And so they were faced with the decision, do we vertically integrate and become a fully functional uh, biopharmaceutical company with a commercial presence, which has its... its as I was referring to with Galena, it's a whole nother animal and, and, um, and a whole host of considerations that, that need to be thought of. Or do we shop it around and, and look for the best buyer and, 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 and be open to an acquisition? And at, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the, the write-up, we leave it with the, invest, the students. To, we, don't, we don't tell them the answer in, in, in the chapter in the book. It's it's more or less like what would you do, and we use it as a teaching tool. And I've taught a couple of uh, courses and um, here in Portland, and I've used that chapter as a teaching tool. And you kind of ask them five kind of key questions uh, to kind of get them thinking about value creation, intellectual asset management, and strategy, and um, and and what should you be doing. And at the end of the day, you'll acquire. The company, two point five billion dollars, um, is a really nice exit for the investors, and um, the product wound up getting uh, 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 a black box label, <laughs> and yeah. so uh, of course it di it didn't perform um, like they had envisioned, and so and and to have a company like Myogen in a place where had they gone ahead and 
and become fully functional and brought on that commercial team, it would have been really, really challenging for them to navigate uh, getting a black box label, um, launching in an indication like PAH, uh, whereas a company like Gilead is well positioned to absorb that and manage that. And I mean, I don't want to say Pharma doesn't do R&D, but they're commercial engines and um, they're much more interested in amortizing uh, um, products over their cash flows for shareholder value um, and then taking on certain risky projects. And um, so that was the purpose and what got us excited about it was just there was a lot of things to consider. And I could sit in front of a classroom and talk an hour about about all the various um, decisions that need to be made and why they were made and, and why it was very interesting, including going to, I believe it was Abbott, to yep. get, or Abby to get to get the asset in the yep. first place. Yeah, I'm familiar with that story. Actually, I've done some of the, or I did some of the patent work on Amber Sutton and then the follow-on Daria Sutton. So it's kind of an interesting connection we have. But yeah, it's a fascinating story from Mycogen Gilead to Abbott to slash Abby to, and then I think the Royalty Pharma got involved somewhere as well. Yeah, very, very interesting. And, and I, I have to admit, I haven't followed up on it in quite some time. So um I'm, I'm trying to remember everything from what I wrote about yeah. 11 years ago. No, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting problem to select for a book like that. So, um, yeah, that, that, I think that as a teaching tool is probably a really good one for, for students who are looking to maybe jump into the startup world. So I think that's a really good choice. So, okay, switching gears now, let's finally talk about OHSU and, um, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about OHSU? I know I did some research and I think people will be really interested in learning about the large number of research centers and institutes and all the work that you guys do. Sure. So um, we are the only medical school in the state of Oregon. So we are an, we're an academic teaching hospital um, and all of our research is focused on health sciences. We have everything from basic research to clinical research, and we truly want to just improve the quality of life of those in our communities through healthcare and by disseminating information that can advance in scientific discovery. Uh, we operate on about $400 million in federal funding to support our research mission. Uh, we have, like you indicated, we have a lot of institutes and centers. They each have their own leadership uh, reporting systems, and it feeds up into either the dean of the School of Medicine or the chief research officer, uh, and which also kind of pulls towards the provost and the president, et cetera. And so um, we think this really does uh, give us a unique advantage to um, explore a, a variety of of opportunities, including occupational health, uh, uh, um, uh, natural medicine, uh, rare disease. Uh, there's just a tremendous uh, amount of work going on. And we're not a traditional university. For example, I went to UCSD and we had an engineering department. We had a film and art. And we don't have that. And, and, and all of our students are post-bachelorette. So they, they've all, we only have a graduate student population. And so it's just kind of a neat, exciting um, place to be if your passion is for life sciences. Uh, it, it, and so it, it is unique in that way. The other, I think, unique 
aspect of OHSU is we are one of seven uh, national primate centers, which just really gives us a resource to answer, you know, critical translational questions that we couldn't otherwise answer in a murine or other animal model. And so uh, it's just a, a really special resource. Yeah, and especially for like drug discovery and things like that, it it really helps move things along quicker than, like you said, using a mouse or I'm familiar with beagle beagle studies, for example, and things like that. Yep, absolutely. And so, yeah, um, it it is a very exciting place to be. Yeah, and I will say to your your um, mission when you were starting out in terms of wanting to be involved in. Alzheimer's research and stuff. I, one of the institutes I noticed is that you do have a dedicated one to aging and Alzheimer's disease research, which I'm sure, you know, going back to what drew you into doing this type of work must feel really good now that you're able to be involved in that type of research as well. Absolutely. And and I, I do manage an Alzheimer's asset and, um, and it's still uh, progressing in the research facilities here at OHSU. There are a couple of exciting uh, potential um, uh, uh, drug candidates uh, for Alzheimer's that, that um, I get to work with. So absolutely, um, that's a good reminder of why I do what I do. Yeah, exactly. And that's a horrible disease. So whatever we can do to to try and ease that on not only the patients, but their families is a is a really good thing. Now, getting more granular to talk about your office, can you tell us a little bit about how your office is structured? As you said, you're not kind of the typical university. Um, so I'm wondering if your office is structured similar to other tech transfer offices or maybe because um, of your particular student population and all these institutes, maybe you're structured a little bit differently. Sure. Uh, so there are several groups that, that work um, with commercialization at OHSU. Uh, we are the technology transfer office. All intellectual assets are centralized through our office. Uh, my team manages the entire portfolio of, of intellectual property that we're responsible for, for overseeing and for transferring into um, the hands of someone that can uh, take it to the next place where it can impact someone's life. Uh, we are broken up um, by having a technology development and licensing team, which is my team. Uh, and uh, we Responsible for the patents, the copyrights, um, data sets, any asset that we can leverage to, to impact uh, uh, the, the research programs that um, take place at OHSU. We have a industry and academic kind of collaborations group uh, within the office, and they're responsible for material transfer agreements, sponsored research agreements, other sorts of collaborations. Um, they work really close with us. I think having that group within our office is a big advantage. It allows us to really communicate on things that I may be working on that impacts what they're working on and vice versa. And so we work really closely with them. We generally expect most of our licensing managers to have gone through that group. Uh, I, was, I went through that group at one point in time. And it really does help us make decisions as we think about um, the contents of, of a license agreement. And, and we don't just do license agreements. We'll do license and development agreements that may be built into one. And so um, we have that group within the office. Uh, we have what's unique about our office is we have 
a internal patent group. Uh, it's becoming more and more common as you look at technology transfer, at least in, in the United States. But it's still not fully accepted as a meaningful cost savings approach to managing patent portfolios. And I would tell you that it's tremendously valuable. Now, it's a small group, so we can't rely on that group for every single application or opportunity that comes across and is disclosed to us. However, uh, I can, in real time, get feedback from an attorney and that can help guide me as I start to develop a strategy around licensing and securing rights around a particular property. Uh, the other thing I really am, am truly um, excited about in sharing with all of you is the fact that we can have a patent group allows us to place more bets. They're already absorbed in our overhead. The cost of, of the team is absorbed in the overhead. So there's no billable hours there. But we can file in-house. We have filing fees, um, which is a cost, but it's minimal until we get to a nationalization. But it just allows us to place more bets. And I'm a strong believer in trying to not be the sole decision maker on what is good and what is not good. Because without the community, the community knows so much more than I do. I pick up things along the way, but I know somebody who knows somebody who can talk to me about something. And if I don't place that bet, I never get that feedback. And so it's much like uh, an in your investment portfolio. Uh, you can talk yourself into or out of an investment really quickly um, just by getting really granular into the details and the financial statements and the product development. But, you know, if, if you if you just think about, you know, at what point do you, um, you get too granular and you lose an opportunity because you talk yourself out of something, the same approach I like to take with intellectual property within reason because I can't do that for everything because the workload follows, right? And so if there's anything that feels like it passes my initial sniff test, I can really leverage that patent group as a resource to allow me to talk to an expert in the field um, and get feedback. And then I can take that to my investigator and let them know what I've learned. And that helps relationally between me and my, my internal stakeholders and um, creates credibility that uh, may not otherwise be recognized by my investigator if I come to them and say, hey, these, this is my feedback. I'm coming to them and I'm saying, um, uh, Lisa Mueller is telling me this from a patent perspective, that this is the information that um, is critical to you advancing your research to having a, an allowable claim for um, So there's the, the patent group. And then we have uh, um, uh, an operations team. And in the operations team, we do have a technology kind of um, collaborations manager uh, who is responsible for our um, marketing of technologies. Uh, currently, that position is vacant. Uh, she uh, got a really nice job opportunity in Houston and took it. And so we're all really proud of her. Um, but we, ha we generally have a technology collaborations manager in that team. We have our finance administrator in that team, which works really, really close with the licensing team. Uh, we have lots of post-license compliance and other uh, issues to sort out. We work really closely with her. Um, and then just your general administrative. But the one person in that team that I would really like to highlight is Nicole Garrison, who is our compliance manager. And she is phenomenal. 
and she keeps us on track with our federal compliance. Yeah. That's a never-ending job, quite frankly. Working with I. Edison and doing all that thing is a never-ending job. Yeah, well, she's really appreciated. I and mean, everyone in the office is really appreciated. But if, if you're listening, Nicole, she probably doesn't even know I'm doing this interview. <laughs> uh, she does a tremendous job, and she has a really important role in which she uh, We do do startups and new ventures. Um, and startups and new ventures is kind of interesting. Um, I am responsible for startups. I spend most of my time doing startups. Um, but we do have, um, to your question earlier about the various institutes and the different groups, we have um, started a group called um, OHSU Collaborations and Entrepreneurship. And so we work really closely with Lisa Lucasco and Aditi Martin, really Aditi Martin's team. Uh, but Lisa does kind of the new ventures part. And so we do kind of like this joint, sharing of how we proceed with startups. And I think we'll probably get into this a little bit more. Yeah. But we do, we are responsible for startups and new ventures. And that's generally done through the licensing team. Yeah. It sounds like you guys have a lot going on in your office. I mean, um, I talked with Laura Fritz from Emory, um, not last episode, but the episode before. And and Emory similarly has an in-house patent team. So that translates, like you said, to efficiencies and I think some more filings because you do have counsel there. So do you file a lot of applications? Do you have some numbers you could feel comfortable sharing us in terms of the number of applications you file and maybe how many disclosures you get a year and what you do file on? Sure. Uh, well, so we get... Uh, about 145 per year. Um, that's the five. That's our. That's the five-year trailing average. One of the metrics I use to gauge our performance in each given year on how much we're proactively soliciting disclosures and and just happen to receive as well. Um, so we get about 145 uh, as it relates to the five-year trailing average. This year, I think we had 149. Uh, which has not been reported out yet. Uh, we are working on our metrics to report out. Uh, we file on roughly one third of all of our disclosures, so it's about forty-six to fifty a year. Um, I, I can look up the numbers to see what total patent. Those are that's new provisional applications. Sure. Uh, I think we probably convert somewhere between a similar number. I think it's actually slightly less. I think we probably convert about forty-two applications a year. Um, yeah. And then, of course, we have nationalization decisions and yeah. everything else that comes with it. And how about licenses? Do you, uh, what do your license numbers look like uh, per year in terms of active licenses that and deals that you do? Sure. So uh, this is just, uh, these numbers are, that I'll give to you now is per autumn guidelines. Uh, there are, are more licenses that the office yeah. actually oversees. It's just not recognized by autumn. Sure. Simplicity and things. Um, so uh, let's see here. So we did uh, our five-year trailing average is roughly 108 new licenses per year. Uh, we will report out this year on 121 licenses wow. and options. That's great. Uh, 10% of those were copyrights. Thirty uh, percent were patents. Thank you. Really <laughs> happy about that. And and sixty percent were biological materials. That's great. Just a quick question on those copyrights. Are you copywriting things like 
drug treatment protocols? Um, what what can you share a little bit? I, I find it interesting when universities are filing copyrights to see what they're actually filing copyrights on, because I, I've talked to some, we've had some other guests on this podcast where they're actually copywriting various creative works. And, and that's a little bit different than I suspect that you're probably doing there. Sure. Um, our, our copyrights are copyrights are often software based. Okay. Um, things that we don't think we could secure a patent, patent on. That makes sense. IT applications. Yep. Digital um, health is big, a big space. Yeah, I had not thought about um, doing uh, treatment protocols. I think that's a very interesting uh, consideration and I will look into further because I think that there is, um, I can only imagine that that is something that we could do well based on. I was thinking that too. Yeah, I've had some clients who've done that in the past. That's why I was thinking, given the medical school there, that that, you know, in addition to software might be something that you might be doing. Yeah, that's a a, a, a really a, a good thought, and, and I will look into that further. Thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Um, keeping on the trend of patents, um, let's talk about litigation. Uh, do you guys have any patent litigation? Have you had any in the past? I know this is something that's usually kind of a sore subject with universities. Um, um, no one likes patent litigation, whether you're, you're a university, a hospital, or even a, a, a corporation, but um, would be interesting to know what your experience has been in that regard. Sure. Um, so cautiously, uh, we are uh, uh, an academic health science center. Uh, our our goal is to improve patient lives. We invest in patents that we think we can transfer by way of license. Uh, we have a pretty high success rate on on that as far as uh, total patent costs incurred versus reimbursed, which is somewhat of an indicator as, as to our performance on how we treat our patents. Would we defend a patent? Uh, yes, if it was an important patent, uh, but we would really need to look at the, the details and the information at hand and try to figure out what the best strategy would be. Um, it is definitely not our intention to collect patents and enforce them. Uh, you know, so, so no, I personally don't have any experience with, with having to enforce a patent. We've had startups and uh, licensees who have, um, but we generally uh, grant them uh, the right to take the lead on that. And um, so, yeah, we really try to, uh, our, our, uh, the view that the community has about OHSU's business practices and patient care is really important to the institution. And so, um, we, we approach that very cautiously. It seems to be the philosophy of a, a lot of the universities that I've talked to, and I haven't run across too many that have had much litigation at all. So it's not surprising that you guys are treated similarly as they do. Now, you talked a little bit before about corporate partners um, at OHSU. Can you tell us a little bit more about the corporate partners you have um, now and you know, do those lead to any different deal structures than you know, maybe your straight license deals? Yeah, um, we have quite a few partners, uh, some that are pretty unique. Uh, I, I do think that, that we have a unique relationship with GE Healthcare, uh, which um, uh, Jit Banerjee spearheaded, who is now at University of Connecticut. And um, that's a really unique structure where uh, we're taking uh, 
GE Healthcare, engineers and technicians, and same is true with another company, um, Hillrom, who was once Walsh Allen. Walsh Allen was acquired by Hillrom. And both of these two groups kind of go in and, and they're presenting um, engineers from these healthcare companies um, coming into surgical suites and various clinical settings and working side by side with with our clinical folk. And we've dedicated time. And we, we, of course, uh, they're paid based on the procedures that they do. But we've been able to work with the hospital to set up an arrangement where we are able to do kind of um, these technology brainstorming sessions oh, cool. in a clinical setting to identify real world problems that the clinicians are experiencing. And then we're leveraging uh, the resources of, say, GE Healthcare or, or Hillrom to help complement the ideas and the, the products that get developed. And um, it, it has led to uh, uh, an increased number of disclosures. Um, it, it's still, those projects are still building momentum. And so sure. the result of licensing activity is still to be determined. Um, what I will do without calling out which group sure. is from uh, it has it has resulted in some um, in some licensing transactions that are that are um, underway right now, and so definitely it's had an impact. So this is kind of one area of of a partnership, which is uh, you know we have these big project statements, and um, so it's pretty interesting. Um, we also have a variety of others, and one that I would love to just talk about, and I'll bring the same company up. Uh, later on, I'm sure. assuming, depending on what questions you ask me, but Veer Biotechnology, we have a very deep partnership with Veer Biotechnology. Uh, so Veer Biotechnology originally was founded on the concept of we want to tackle infectious disease. We want to cure infectious disease as we know it. Um, Bob Nelson of Arch Venture Partners and Jay Parrish of Arch Venture Partners had this big pie-in-the-sky idea. And they stumbled across Lewis Picker and Klaus Frew uh, from the Vaccine and Gene Therapy Institute here at OHSU. That, uh, that that institute alone is incredible and deserves a tremendous amount of recognition yeah. outside of just the beer bio, bio, beer bio and the CMV vector platform technology that they're developing. But nonetheless, so we wound up, we had a company named Tomega Vax. It was a faculty-led startup that wound up being acquired by Veerbio. It was the first asset that Veerbio really acquired. And they just support There's so much research back and forth between our labs and their labs and information sharing. It is just really a, a productive um, example of how we can build a company. Uh, a company can acquire the the resources and the talent to secure the capital and secure the uh, technical folks to really take something um, through through the preclinical work and into the clinic and and can leverage the unique resources we have, including the the primates here, because a lot of this work is, is really dependent on, upon our, our primates. And so that's a, a really interesting um, uh arrangement that we have with 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 beer bio that we're really proud of and uh yeah very proud of that that's really interesting 
Yeah, it, 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 it really is. Uh, we also um, ha- had a partner, and I'll probably share a little bit about this later on, but we all, we've also uh, done a number of, of license and development agreements with a, a variety of parties, and, and, and one of those was Ultragenics. And, and, and it was all surrounding around um, their desire to have access to a limited data set that uh, was happened to be the most robust, uh, highest powered study in this uh, oxidative uh, metabolic disorder. Um, it is a rare disease. And we had a blinded study that was in the <laughs> investigator initiated here. And the, the, the partnership wound up leading to uh, um, a data license that got included in a regulatory filing that resulted in regulatory approval. Oh, wow. Incredible. That's really, I've not heard that happen too often. Yeah, really unique situation. Um, and, and that was something that we're, we're really proud of. We're proud of our investigator. We're pr- proud of the various groups at OHSU that contributed. We have a food science unit um, that, that uh, had to help with the study design and figure out how you're going to, get the food to the patient. Um, now, Ultragenics had it approved as a drug. Uh, we were pursuing it as, as a medical food, um, but the data didn't matter because our data got combined with Ultragenics data and, and, and it was exactly what the FDA needed. Uh, just a really cool story for, for Dr. Melanie Gillingham. A big shout out to her, her willingness to collaborate with us and other people on, on campus. Um, Oak Tree had a very large part of that. They're our Oregon Clinical and Translational Research Institute um, here. And so just a really collaborative environment. So I think that was a pretty cool corporate partner that um, that I think deserves recognition. Sounds like you guys have some really good corporate partners. And like you pointed out, the collaboration and the collaborative nature has really paid off, which is really awesome. So it sounds like you guys do a lot of deals, a lot of licensing transactions, and you've got a lot of experience in this area. So I'm curious, um, looking back at some of your past licensing transactions or partnerships or thing, corporate partnerships that you've been involved in, uh, knowing what you know now, what, if anything, would you do differently or what have you learned over time, which I'm sure is a lot? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I guess the the one thing I think for me, the uh, the best license agreement is the license agreement that never has to be revised and restated. Uh, so how do you get there? And so if I could really do something different, I would dig a little deeper into um, what is either the startup or the licensee's um, plans for the asset, and not just basic development plans, but financing strategy, or uh, what is their exit strategy? Are they an asset divestiture? Are they just going to sell the asset? Are they going to sell the company? Are they going to sub-license it in certain territories with limited scope? Um, If you could really get in and and figure out what that is, you could really build your license to meet those needs. And I would say over the years, I've learned um, through... um, problem solving with people that are a lot smarter than I am, or maybe they're not smarter than me. They just have different experiences than me. And um, some of them are VCs, some of them are entrepreneurs, some of them are, are 
VPs of business development or attorneys at various companies or firms. Um, you know, just the backbone of your license needs to be set up so that when you do the deal, it doesn't wind up on the bottom of the stack when someone else goes to do due diligence on the company that is looking to transact on the asset that they acquired from you, which we are a direct benefit of. And yep. so not having uh, to spend time revising that. And part of that is spending the time to look at um, what you can find um, that will lead you to a structure of a license that is, for example, very common found in a publicly traded company, which usually goes through the company's been financed by some prominent venture firms or corporate PCs, um, private equity, very sophisticated folks that take an asset into, say, for example, an IPO. And so I wish I had been um, a, a little resourced myself more on some of my earlier deals by looking at what are other people doing on deals of this nature rather than just looking at, you know, the people that are surrounding me and getting feedback from them. So they're super critical. Uh, my boss and my peers uh, have taught me so much, um, but looking at, at anything you can find public. And of course, you're not going to find deal comps by looking through uh, Edgar and what's on, on sec.gov. Like, but you will find structure and, and and you'll get a night and then you can look at well okay who's involved in those transactions and then you can kind of say okay that's that is the life cycle that the asset took and then I want my license agreement to 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 look like that because or at least some have some um, uh, appearance to be of similar quality and and scope so that you don't run into problems and that's uh, technology by technology is is going to be very different. I, I'm working on a, on a new startup right now that I think is going to be really cool that I can't talk about yet. But the deal structure is, yeah, I think we're we're really close to closing the deal, and I think it's going to be a beautiful license agreement. <laughs> Others are going to one day look when it's public and say, "Huh, how did OHSU do that?" And so I just wish I had applied some of those tactics earlier on. And part of it's resources and bandwidth and. Sure. Um, and also learning over time. Uh, it's yeah. like being a patent attorney, too. You look back at those claims you drafted really early on in your career and you're like, wow, how, what? Wow. Yeah. And you yeah. then you gain experience <laughs> and, and now you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's that's really good. So I think it's kind of similar in that yeah. regard. Yeah. You know, I, I've been really blessed over the last kind of four years to do deals with some really talented people who had resources. And so you wind up negotiating deals. Uh, that with the startup company that's going to be financed at say twenty five million from the get go, and and the people that are reviewing your document are are really talented attorneys, and so the conversation becomes, hey, I have this problem. What is our solution? And 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 then the entrepreneur or the investor says, well, you know, I also have a problem, and and I, I don't understand that, so. Uh, let's collectively figure out a solution. And then we kind of pencil in what we think is a reasonable solution. And then it winds up going through top tier, through a top tier attorney and they hear the story. And then, and if the entrepreneur did his or her job to uh, uh, 
instruct their counsel on the spirit of what we verbally agreed to, it comes back with it with some beautiful yep. language. And so I, I'm blessed with that. And, and I have a library of, of, of language that I, I will return to again and again and again, because it solves problems that I've experienced. And you just, you just can't get that without rolling up your sleeves and, and doing the work doing and the just work, being yeah. honest and, and telling your partner, I don't know what the solution is here, but this is a problem. And I do think that universities need to be open to um, taking on a little bit of risk. We're oftentimes so risk averse. And and I think OHSU is kind of unique because we're a semi-quasi-publicly traded company. We can hide behind tort claims as as it relates to our clinical practices and our healthcare practices, uh, but we're not state governed. Sure. You can take a little more risk. It gives us it gives us a lot of flexibility. So I need to teach my team and teach my boss and he needs to teach me um, how and when we should, um, you know, exercise that excuse of my institution won't let me do that. And, and that should be, you should, you should never have to say that to somebody, hopefully, but sometimes that is uh, the excuse we have to give. And, um, and sometimes that's true. Right. There are examples exactly. where that is very true, where our general counsel says no. And and at the end of the day, uh, I have to value what my general counsel tells me because they're my counsel. Exactly. And you talked a little bit before about some of your startups. And I was wondering if you could tell us and share a few more of your success stories, whether they're startups or they're licensing deals or devices or other therapies that came out that have really impacted society. Ooh, that's a really hard question. Um, obviously, the Ultragenics uh, limited data set, I think, is an immediate example of, of yeah. uh, com- community impact. We, Contrae was invented at, at OHSU at one point in time, which is a weight loss drug um, uh, that, that could have a meaningful impact on, on certain patients. Um, ooh, that's, a, that's a tough question. I, I would say that from my lens, um, I think the real impact is is coming. And I say that sure. because we have multiple companies that are, are developing clinical assets now. And, and it's one of those companies that is going to, uh, so for example, we're working, uh, one of our startups is, is Autobahn uh, Therapeutics. Um, they're a San Diego based company. They're incredible. They have incredible talent. They have an incredible asset and they're going to impact people with neurological disorders. And I believe that um, they've got the, the talent, the technology, and the resources uh, to impact um, those inflicted with multiple sclerosis. That's awesome. And that's a really cool story because that actually, that, so the, the, the technology, like, so Dr. Scanlon, who's um, one, of, one of our chemists, he's a, a, a pharmacologist as well but he's a very talented chemist, came from University of California, San Francisco. He, he'd been working on a drug called um, the Bedrome for years. And it, they explored it for metabolic disorders and, and whatnot. And uh, this whole data package came out of, uh, related to neurological disorders, came out of a, a hypothesis that he had um, and funding that was 
philanthropic that came from from Dan Whiten of Whiten and Kennedy, which is like the third most largest advertising firm in the world. Uh, they're headquartered here in Portland, or at least one of their headquarters here in Portland. And it went into, uh, you know, so here we had an example of philanthropic funding that went into uh, uh, Dr. Bordet's uh, hands, who is a multiple sclerosis expert that wound up funding projects, and Dr. Scanlon's project got funded, and the right data package it, it was, was developed. And so I think that is one that's going to be very impactful. I think that the CMV vector platform that Virabio is developing is very impactful. Um, there's a lot of, it sounds like you have a lot lot of examples. Yeah. There's a lot of really good examples. And even on your website, when I was doing my research, the number of startups you have thinking again, Oregon, it's not like Silicon Valley, San Diego, San Francisco, or Boston, or even RTP for that matter. I was really, really impressed by the number of startups that you've had come out of the university there. Yeah. Thank you. So I'll just highlight three. Sure. We had an IPO. That occurred last fiscal year. Uh, this fiscal year, we had a Series B, which was a seven, I think a seventy-six million dollar raise, and that was Autobahn. And then we had a Series A, Vico Therapeutics, which is our only startup company that is overseas, uh, headquartered in the Netherlands. Wow. That uh, raised thirty-one million, so it was something like one hundred and five million. Wow. In venture That's capital in, invested in, in two companies within the last three months. And um, and I think Vico is a really cool opportunity. Yeah, they're they're going after a variety of, of several other um, areas of interest that I, I may or may not be at liberty to talk about. But um, I know one that's public, Huntington's, which is a different asset. But Dr. Gail Mandel at OHSU is, is a very talented investigator. Um, she was a Howard Hughes medical uh, supported investigator for many years, and she um, is working on on single base editing of RNA, which can address non-dividing cells. And for, for treatment of a monogenetic disorder, uh, which is Rett syndrome. And, and it's a really cool, powerful story. Um, and I think that that has a lot of promise. And the, um, the, the Rett uh, syndrome uh, Research Foundation is behind it. And a lot of cool stuff happening. That's really cool. And it sounds a lot like a um a number of items or startups are working on things that are probably properly classified as orphan drug related, which is great too. It sounds like we do. And, um, one area we have an interest in is adrenal leukodystrophy. Ah, yep. That's awesome. A very rare disorder. Uh, we have a, a, a group that's chasing down. So Dr. Susan Hayflick, she, um, is the chair of, of our department, uh, MMI. Don't ask me what it stands for, Medical Molecular Immunology. Um, and, and she's interested in PCAN. And she's got uh, a foundation she started. She's uh, developing medical food, uh, well-supported. Um, it's an, we have an international collaborator on that. Uh, the objective great. is to get, get a treatment to these children that are inflicted by this disease as cheaply as possible. That's great. That's really cool. That's really cool stuff. So that's awesome. Well, switching gears a little bit, um, you're a tech transfer office and every guest that I interview who's from a tech transfer office, we talk about challenges. Um, Be curious to know what you would say some of your two biggest challenges are. Oh, yeah. Um, 
categorizing them down to two. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be here today, tomorrow, the next day, I'm sure. Like everybody's got challenges, especially in a COVID environment right now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think gap funding for, for translational um, technology development would be um, probably the biggest challenge that we have. Uh, you know, so often we have, I have a hard job um, because our team is not geared to or our investigators. They're basic research scientists. Some of them have industry experience and product development experience. Others are really asking basic research questions. They're building tool compounds and, and they don't aren't funded to a- answer some of the questions that maybe aren't quite as exciting to their research and their publications, but would be very important in um, from the perspective of a technology transfer professional for uh, getting community buy-in. <laughs> so, and that data package is sometimes not overly expensive, but, uh, you know, uh, $100,000, $200,000 uh, strategically um, um, invested in a project could go a long way. So I'd say gap funding is a huge problem for us. Um, I guess the other problem that we have is we don't have a dedicated incubator for startup creation um, and startup space that we could the university could invest in um, to not burden our startup companies up front because we have most of our startup companies aren't supported by a venture group or an entrepreneur that's really well connected or a, a, a corporate partner necessarily. They got They have to start somewhere. So incubator would be the other one. Yeah. Are there any plans for an incubator there? Or is that not even on the table right now? It is on the table. In fact, there is now an incubator, but it, it, it's a pilot incubator. Um, it is kind of... Re- restricted to a particular institute right now sure. as it works through its piloting of the, what they're investing in. And I don't know if that's public, so I, I'll probably um, not say much more than that. Sure, um, But that's not necessarily what I think we need. We do need that. Um, ideally, we would take that and we'd expand it out and have much. But we need a, a an OHSU-centric incubator. incubator. That, um, yeah, and we are talking about that. Good. Well, hopefully you'll get there sooner rather than later. Uh, another topic I wanted to touch on with you is women inventors and entrepreneurs. Uh, do you have any programs to help and encourage and assist women inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, could you talk about them in a little bit of detail? Sure. I, I think that's a really important topic. And I think that's something that we could do a better job of. You know, we do support women entrepreneurs and, and women scientists in, in a variety of ways. First of all, we we believe in inclusion. And so we're always asking ourselves about, um, um, do we have a diverse um, population that we're investing, what little funding we have into those groups? Um, but what we, what we have done is we have supported uh, the women in science groups here in Portland in a number of ways. In, including hosting events on campus to promote uh, women in life science leadership roles. And we've had some very prominent women participate in those conversations. 
and it's always well attended. Uh, we also have um, had in the past an annual commercialization conference for which we may or may not continue to do depending upon what our new collaborations and entrepreneurship group decides to do with their time. Um, and we've always had uh, a panel that was focused on either women in leadership or uh, 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 women in venture, uh, um, uh, 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 women leading scientific uh, um, groups in big pharma and places like GE and Thoram. Cool. So, so we've always tried try to emphasize that. But we, we, we don't have, other than that, we don't have a real specific program. But what our office, I, I can tell you, we value all people. But the last two years, uh, we've recognized uh, Dr. Summer Gibbs uh, for her work as um, Venture of the Year, awesome. uh, which uh, it becomes known locally, uh, hopefully beyond local, but it definitely becomes known locally. And this year, our new inventor uh, and new innovator of the year was um, a young woman named Jessica Grant. And she's just super motivated. She's really positive. She's got a great personality. And she has all the elements that you want in a young entrepreneur. And so we recognized her for, um, she's not an investigator. She doesn't run a lab. Um, uh, and she stepped up and she has, has um, been moving the ball forward on, on a special type of feeding technology for certain children or infants. And so we try to do those sorts of. That's awesome. Uh, at least. Um, yeah, it's, we just try to be inclusive of everyone. We can. That's great. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Um, let's talk a little bit about organizations that your office is involved in. You mentioned Autumn before, and I'm assuming you're involved in Autumn. And I'd be curious to know what you think about the benefits that Autumn provides. Any others like LES? I'd be be curious to hear what you guys are involved in. Sure. Yeah, I, Autumn. Absolutely. Uh, Autumn is a great organization. Uh, I, I've, I'm impressed with the uh, growth of Autumn over the years, um, specifically in industry engagement. Uh, when I first started in technology transfer, it was, you know, Autumn needed more industry attendees at the annual conference for partnering purposes and just being engaged in the issues and the hurdles that we all have to overcome to, um, uh, to definitively define a partnership. And so Autumn, uh, LES, absolutely. Uh, did, uh, we got a Deal of Distinction Award for the Ultragenic Deal. Awesome. Um, this is last year. Doctor, um, My uh, uh, woman on my team, Dr. Michelle Gunness, she uh, led that deal on the limited data set. And, and so that was really cool to have that Deal of Distinction. And that was through LES. And she got to receive an award and everything. Pretty cool. Um, Bio is an organization that we're very active in. Um, that's generally where I spend most of my time based on my background and, and as well as Biocom, which I don't know if you really delineate between bio and Biocom, but I think there's yeah. a distinction between the two. And I would say um, things like Avamed would be like kind of sure. the places we, we spend most of our time. Sometimes Biofarm America, but um, those would generally be the, be the ones that we interact with the most. And what's your view on credentialing? That ties in a little bit to Autumn. Um, 
Do you find it important? Does it make a difference in your your office if somebody's a registered technology transfer professional or not? I'd be curious on your views. Sure. From a personal perspective, I think anytime I see credentialing, um, it, it at least communicates to me that someone's looking to expand their knowledge base and are willing to take the extra effort that it takes to become credentialed. Um, and so, yes, uh, I think it is important. Um, I also think the CLP um, is is very important. Um, I am not a registered technology transfer professional. I do have my CLP, um, and I will probably do my RTTP at some point as well. I mean, it's not a criteria for our hiring processes, uh, but it does say something about the character. And the same thing is true with if you took the effort to get a professional business degree or a professional law degree, uh, so MBA, JD, um, advanced technical degrees. Um, all of those, I think, are really important in showing effort, um, knowing that a lot of experience is gained through um, doing Do work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we, we do value. And um, one of my, two of my uh, staff members have an RTTP, and I'm very proud of them for taking the time and effort to get those and um, should be rewarded. Yeah. Now, I like to generally close the podcast, Travis, by asking people if they had three wishes that could be granted for their office or a vision that could be realized. What would that be? An incubator, an evergreen gap funding, uh, and adequate resources uh, to really grow the new ventures team to facilitate strategic startup creation and incubation. And given what we've talked about to this point, those make perfect sense. And I really wish I had that genie in a bottle to give you because um, I think you guys are doing great things there. And those are very legitimate, I think, requests. So good luck. I hope I hope you find your genie in the bottle. Thank you so much. Well, Travis, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, I can be reached at uh, Cook. PR at ohsu.edu. That's cook, PR at ohsu.edu. You can also uh, reach out to me and connect with me on LinkedIn. I frequently um, monitor my LinkedIn account. It's one way I stay networked. So Great. Feel free to reach out to me however you can. Excellent. Well, thanks so much again, Travis. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.